King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for all his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he swanly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guest, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, when David asked me to fill in for him for preaching so that he could continue to heal and to recover, I, of course, automatically said yes. Like Amy, I've recently served at congregations where I was preaching every week. And since I'm always a lectionary preacher, I figured, ah, whatever scripture it is, I've got a couple of old sermons, and so I can look at them and kind of see what I've been thinking about and be able to continue to apply it to our place today. Well, last week I preached in our 13th Street worship service and I didn't want to confuse the text within my head and so I didn't even open up the lectionary until Sunday night. And so Sunday night I pulled out my lectionary, I read over the scripture, and I looked up at my husband and said, Nope, never preach this one. (laughs) It's a doozy. People call this text one of the texts of terrors. The beheading of John the Baptist isn't one that ever comes up in the vacation Bible school materials. It's not commonly going to be cross-stitched or shared at a funeral as the beloved's most favored scripture. I mean, the Gospel of Luke decides that it's too hard to fit in within the Gospel narrative and omits the telling of the story altogether. And the Gospel of Matthew shortens the telling of this story to just two 
verses. So why? Why would the shortest gospel of them all, the one that's without a birth narrative of Jesus, why would it include this story instead? Well, because the writer of the Gospel of Mark is a realist and wants to tell it to all of us straight. Our Gospel writer sets this lengthy narrative right here in the middle of Christ, sending the disciples out into the world and them coming back so that we know what it is that is within the world, so that we know the way of the world. As Amy mentioned within her prayer, this text is something that you could easily read now within your newspapers or that you could see a story about within the news. This is what the world looks like. There are folks within the world who have great power and they love to use it for their own good, to advance themselves, to build their own wealth, to keep outsiders out and to disrupt and to not disrupt the status quo. Now those who stand up to the powers that be, they often take a beating. And those who advocate an alternative to the status quo are usually put down very harshly because the status quo often benefits those the most within power. This is the world that the writer of the Gospel of Mark knows. It's the world that he lives in. And in many ways, it's the world that we live in as well. So this writer does not want us to forget. Doesn't want us to forget that those who proclaim God's kingdom of mercy and grace with Jesus and John and the disciples, that they'll have costs to pay. For manipulative measures will be taken to get what is ultimately wanted for those in the most powerful places. Now we, we as Christ's disciples, we are called to live in a different way. Remember what Jesus told us not to do last week and what he told us to do as he was sending us out into the world to be able to preach the gospel. He said, pack nothing, carry nothing but a stick. Accept the hospitality of those around you. Don't rely upon what you can do, what you can gather, but rather have faith in God. Have faith that God will provide that God already provides and provides what is needed through you. We are not called to be a people that live in comfort. We are not called to live in success. Rather, we are called to preach the gospel of Christ, to proclaim that good news to all that we meet. And often that will come with a cost to pay. If you don't believe me, you can ask those who hid Jews during the time of the ruling of Nazi Germany or the women who stood up for the women's rights to vote or the many African Americans and white leaders who marched and protested during the civil rights movements or the teachers that we had who just recently walked 100 miles from Tulsa 
to Oklahoma City demanding better public education funding. Or you can talk to Reverend Duffield and Reverend Teen as they stood up against slavery. Or if you want to have somebody to talk to, you can ask my dad. Growing up, I was a preacher's kid. Now, I'm not sure if that's ever a title that goes away, kind of like when you're a bishop, you're always a bishop, or when you're a president, you're always the president. But I lived my life as a preacher's kid from birth until about third grade. My dad was a preacher in a church that moved us even more than they move United Methodist clergy. And I lived in four different states and had moved nine times before I was in the fourth grade. I remember asking for my birthday present in between my second grade year and my third grade year to just stay in the same school for one full year. That's all I wanted. Now, Dad, he was really good at his job, and I'm not just saying this because I'm his daughter. We'd have many Bible studies at our house as my sister and the other kids and myself would watch Alf in the back bedroom. I lost my first tooth in a little parsonage apartment above the main pastor's house in Brooklyn, New York City. I grew up running around church halls, eating church ladies' food, and going to church practically every day of the week until the middle of third grade. You see, my dad's church believed that not only were Christians the only ones that were going to heaven, but that that particular church, that particular group of people, were the only ones going to heaven. Now, I'd gamble that there were probably some other strong theological beliefs that my dad disagreed with as well for him to go and to stand up to the church elders. But just like John the Baptist, my dad knew that he had to stand up for what was right. After rereading the Bible over a summer, he realized that the church, what he was preaching, wasn't biblically grounded or based. That it wasn't furthering the kingdom of God or the message of hope and love and grace that Christ proclaims. So dad and mom, they joined together in a time of study and prayer. And they came to the same conclusion. Dad had to go and confront the church elders and say that he would not preach this gospel message anymore. The elders heard him and told him that he was to preach what they told him to preach or he would get fired. So my dad quit. He quit. And he waited until I finished up my third grade year for us to move again. This time we moved back to North Carolina to my mom's hometown and four years later we landed in the United Methodist Church. Now dad, he could have kept his mouth shut. He could have kept his job, keeping financial security, comfort, holding on to the status quo of life within the church. He could have climbed up in the ranks of the church elders and continued to be promoted and promoted and promoted and get better jobs and better salaries. But he didn't. So he not only lost his job, but he lost all the benefits that came along with that. 
and mom and dad also lost a lot of friendships. People that had been in their wedding, relationships that they had built memories and faith-filled adventures around. But the one thing they did not lose throughout all of this was their Christ. They did not lose the ones that their friends had introduced them to and helped them to fall in love with. My parents lost a lot of relationships within that courageous move to stand up. But they never lost their relationship with the one who calls them into a life that is filled with grace, love, and hope. And neither did John. John the Baptist did what his life calling was, to be a witness that testifies to the light of the world. John lived out with a purpose, that single mission, to make a way for Christ, to make a path that we could be able to walk down to meet the one who calls us beloved child. It was what John was born to do, what his dad sang about at his birth. He was to prepare the world for the one that would be greater than him, for his younger cousin, Jesus. John knew who he was. He knew his calling and he faithfully and steadfastly and sometimes weirdly lived into that calling, even to the point of death. Now, in our 13th Street worship these past couple of months and within our Wednesday night compassion class, I passed out cards to folks last week that proclaimed a truth about who we are, an affirmation about who God has created us to be, and I believe that it is an affirmation that John knew and lived. It's what my mom and dad had to know before they stood up. It's what those civil rights leaders and women's suffragette movement makers and those hiding the Jews and the walking teachers and the Reverend Duffield, it's what they all had to know in order to stand up to the powers that be. The card says this, I'm a beloved child of God, deserving of love and respect, and God will use me to change the world. That is who you are. That is who God created you to be. That you are called to go out and to stand up and to have the courage to know that you can do it, that even when those voices come back at you telling you how bad or how horrible or all of those things that the world says about us, that you will know that you are a beloved child of God, deserving of love and respect, and that God will use you to change the world. This is the way of the world. This is the story of our lives. But just like in Mark, it's not the whole story. The Gospel of Mark does not end with this narrative because Jesus is there. Jesus comes precisely to show us that there is something more 
that there's something beyond the heartache and the intrigue and the tragedy of Herod and church elders and ourselves. That there's something more beyond what the powers that be proclaim and that we are called to stand up for Jesus and to stand up and to proclaim the message that Christ speaks to all of us. As honest as Mark wants to be about the story of the world, he wants even more to testify to the story of God's great love for the world. And that is why this is not the ending. For there is always another ending. Always an ending where Christ takes up the mess, takes up the heartache, takes up the fallout, and is able to mold it into something beautiful, into something new, and into something life-giving. So y'all do not be afraid to stand up for Jesus, for you have been created for such a moment as this. Thanks be to God. Amen.